Mr. Bowles? Mr. Wachowski, Your Honor. Oh, yes. May it please the court, counsel, I represent the appellant, Dean Christensen, in his appeal seeking reversal and remand from the grant of a motion to dismiss his claims for a violation of the Fourth and Fourteenth Amendments. I would reserve two minutes for rebuttal. As indicated, this case is up on review from a motion to dismiss. As such, the facts alleged in the complaint and the justifiable inferences which can be drawn from them favorable to Mr. Christensen are what this court can consider in determining whether his rights were violated by the force used by Officer Arrow on the night of June 2, 2019. And those facts, as set out in the complaint, are that just before 2 a.m. on Sunday, June 2, 2019, a North Sioux City officer attempted to stop Mr. Christensen as he was leaving the casino on the pretext of a mechanical issue with his truck. Mr. Christensen did not stop. A high-speed chase ensued. And it is alleged by the North Sioux City officer that Mr. Christensen ran some red lights and entered, at least briefly, the opposite lane of traffic. The chase quickly entered Sioux City itself, at which point officers from Sioux City attempted to use stop sticks in a manner violating the department's policy, which resulted in disabling a bystander vehicle in front of Mr. Christensen, which Mr. Christensen was able to avoid, with those stop sticks also disabling the pursuing North Sioux City officer. At this point, Officer Arrow engaged in the pursuit, also in direct violation of his department's policies. While traveling at speeds over 80 miles per hour, Officer Arrow announced that he was going to be utilizing a pit maneuver. Moments later, he did so at high speeds in a location with an open and obvious light pole, spinning Mr. Christensen out into that pole while there were no other vehicles, non-police vehicles, bystanders, or pedestrians in the area. Well, I'm just looking at your complaint to see how that was pleaded. I suspected that your assertion that he wasn't an immediate threat to anyone. That is correct, Your Honor. Maybe you can tell me what paragraph in the complaint I should read for that allegation. That he was no threat to anyone? Yes. I didn't see a cite to a paragraph. I would say that the paragraph would be paragraph 51, which provides that when the pit was performed, the only vehicles in the vicinity were Dean's truck and the police vehicles. Okay, that's not an allegation that he was not an immediate threat to anyone. I believe that in the absence of others in the vicinity, that the inference that can be drawn is that there was no threat. If the roads were empty, then no one's under threat. That's just not true. We've got our high-speed chase cases. The assumption is with a certain level of high-speed driving in certain areas at certain times are inherently and always a risk, not just to other cars, but to pedestrians and 
what and whatnot, bicyclists. And all you want to talk about is cars, but that's not the that's not the public safety risk at issue. And I acknowledge that, Your Honor. Uh, so I, how did you plead the what I consider the legitimate public safety issue in the in the um, uh, Supreme Court's equation? Well, we look at the circumstances as we pled them, and that this was at that this was at two this was at two a.m. Which inherently, this is, wasn't uh, 12 a.m. on Main Street. This was at noon on Main Street. This was 2 a.m. In, uh, in residential area. I don't believe that it was in a residential area, Your Honor. Where is that alleged? Your Honor, that is, that is the, loca the, lo the specific location of the stop is, is not specifically alleged in the complaint. Well, you know, that's... that's but, so the district court can, can I mean, he... He's he's got the he's got the affidavits. This is not a video cam case, but you don't need that. Uh, Your Honor, there are no affidavits uh, in this motion to dismiss, and I think that's part of the uh, one of the things that distinguishes this case from, uh, from the vast majority uh, from that's the vast majority. Point, but I, I think I think our our uh, high speed chase cases, of which there are many, um, basically make interpret Scott as as creating a. Um, In the Supreme Court, we, we lay down a more sensible rule. A police officer's attempt to terminate a dangerous high-speed car chase that threatens the lives of innocent bystanders does not violate the Fourth Amendment even when it places the flee fleeing motorist at risk. And that means if all the complaint is alleging is that situation, a Rule 12b-6 dismissal is appropriate. That's the way I read the, our law interpreting Scott. And uh, and to a certain extent, I, I agree with you on that. But I think that for these purposes, the operative language from Scott is that threatens the lives of, of innocent bystanders. Yes, but it's not alleged to the contrary. And, and it's, it's, it's inherent. I don't. I don't believe that it is that it is inherent, and I think. And the reason for that is, if you look at the case laws, which I believe, uh, at least as cited here across the board, are all summary judgment cases involving uh, video evidence, involving uh, depositions, affidavits, testimony along those lines. That across the board, uh, that I think with almost near uh, near uniformity, there is the acknowledgement. Of weaving through uh, through vehicles and traffic, the presence of uh, the presence of other vehicles having been proven by uh, by evidence presented by the by the by the defendant officers in those cases to justify the use of the force. I don't believe that under the uh, pleading standards for uh, a motion for a, a motion to dismiss. Uh, where the inferences need to be drawn favorable to the, to the uh, to to the drafting party, uh, that a requirement to state what was not present is necessary to state a to state a plausible claim for purposes of a constitutional violation. I think that part of uh, our position is that it was improper for uh, the uh, district court to uh, essentially read in the presence. Uh, of other vehicles into uh, into this into these circumstances. Does your complaint concede the presence of a civilian car that went over the sticks? We do. That 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 is the one vehicle that uh, that is alleged in the complaint. So why isn't that enough? 
Well, because, Your Honor, at the point that the uh, force was utilized uh, by Officer Errol, that car, they had been there well, well past that car, and but the... You realize the perverse practical outcome of your argument, and that is um, you have to wait to take this sort of action until there's people around. And that the officer, at least based on, on what I understand to be the facts, knew that this was a dangerous situation, knew that, an, uh, that another civilian had been put in danger because of the stop, and, and chose to make the stop when there arguably were not other vehicles around. You're arguing he should have waited until there were pedestrians close by and then made the stop? No, our, I think the core of it is that our argument is not that it was improper to utilize a degree of force to end the chase. It is in large part the decision to end the chase at that specific location where there was an enhanced where there was an enhanced risk of harm from the maneuver that was being performed at the speeds it was being performed at uh, and I think that those are circumstances that have to be taken that have to be taken into account in the reasonableness of the force which is considered at in the circumstances known to the officers at the moment, the force is being utilized. Well, so at the is, moment... Is that clear? I mean, in other words, the, the officer has to disregard everything that's happened up until that point and just take a snapshot of what's going on at the moment. I, I take your point that you know, the decision is, is based in part on where it occurs, the speed and that, but I don't think an officer needs to disregard everything that's happened up until that point. And I, and I agree with you on that, that... It is the circumstance that it is the full scope of the circumstances known to the officer, and I don't believe that in the facts as alleged in the complaint, the inferences that can be drawn from the complaint, that the justifications that appear in the summary judgment cases, uh, for in which have been found sufficient to ju to justify uh, the use of deadly force, uh, that those are present, that those can just be assumed to have been present because at 2 a.m. he uh, at 2 a.m. he was driving at those speeds following the following the officer for a start that started for, uh, on a pretextual mechanical issue. I believe that uh, another uh, axiom is that uh, when an officer when when an officer's actions are enhancing the danger, which I believe the Sioux City officer's actions. Uh, uh, pur uh, pursuit in violation of the policies, the use of stop sticks, uh, stop sticks in violation of the policies, that when the officers are, enhan are enhancing the dangers, the interest, the interest of, the, of the state in the stop is, in the, well, not the stop, in the, in the force used, is diminished. I believe that that is, uh, that, that, that is clearly established in the law as well. So, our, uh, I, I don't think the relevance of the policy violation is established in any law under applying Scott. Robert, I would tend to disagree on that because I believe that. Well, give me a case where, which says it's not dispositive, but it's highly relevant. Uh, I would say that in the Eighth Circuit, uh, no, this was in the Ludwig v. Anderson case, which preceded. Uh, uh, the, the, Scott, the, Scott v. Harris, the Scott v. Harris decision, uh, the Eighth Circuit said exp uh, expressly in that case that uh, department policy is a consideration relevant to the analysis of constitutionally excessive force. 
Uh, that was, uh, like I said, Ludwig v. Anderson, a, a 1995 case from the Eighth Circuit. And I would say post, uh, post Scott v. Harris, if you look at the uh, Fifth Circuit's decision of uh, Little v. Uh, Bexar County, uh, that case also uh, looked into uh, the, officer's tr the, uh, the officer's training as to the futility of shooting at a moving vehicle. So I believe that those two cases, uh, that those two cases present uh, present the law uh, for uh, consideration. No, the, Fifth, the Fifth Circuit does not present the law, and neither does Ludwig. But they're relevant. They're relevant. You're, I mean, they're responsive. Yes, and they don't state the law. No, I, 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 that is correct, Your Honor. But I do believe that they do indicate that, these, that the policy is a relevant consideration in assessing the objective reasonableness of the excessive force. Uh, and as it applies to our 14th Amendment claim, uh, the uh, Porter v. Osborne case uh, out of uh, the Ninth Circuit in 2008 uh, also considered uh, department policy as it related to uh, an intent of officer's intent to harm uh, for a 14th Amendment violation. Uh, I see that I'm going into my, my rebuttal time, so I'd like to reserve that. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Postolka. May it please the court and counsel. My name is Caleb Christofferson. I represent, uh, I'm with the city of Sioux City. Okay. And so I'm always uh, going to be here, but it's not, it's not what's on my sticker. No, sir. Uh, I, no, I, I know, I know. Okay. And, and I was, I'm, I'm appreciative that you came. Yes, sir. And I guess, you know, on behalf of my clients in the city, we appreciate the court's indulgence in allowing me to appear in Mr. Pistolka's stead. Uh, I've never, you know, never done this before, I, uh, but uh, hope, hopefully you won't hold that against me. So um, I guess to start, we're here because we're arguing about whether or not Magistrate Judge Mahoney committed reversible error by granting um, the city and ERAL's and uh, Chief Mueller's uh, motion to dismiss. And, and when I'm referring to the appellees in this case, I'm just going to say the city, if that's okay with you. Um, so the, the city's motion to dismiss was granted by Judge Mahoney, and we're here to decide if, if uh, she committed reversible error uh, by granting that motion. Um, so the motion to dismiss, as, as has been pointed out, it is a little different from the cases cited because those were at the summary judgment stage. I don't want to get too much into that. I don't. I, I think that might be a distinction without a difference. But um, Judge Mahoney granted the motion to dismiss based on the facts alleged on the complaint, the four corners of the complaint, because that's all she had to go on uh, for that. Uh, as was already pointed out uh, by Judge Loken, uh, a lot of the allegations uh, of facts that there was no danger, that there, you know, the, the, the force was unjustified. It's based on facts that were not alleged in, in the complaint. So I, I agree, Judge Loken, that, that um, facts not alleged uh, are being urged by Christensen then to assert error against Judge Mahoney. 
and um, that, that, that can't stand. Um, the, the opportunity to allege those facts was there. That, that, um, sorry, I'm tripping up here a little here. But um, Christensen had the opportunity to allege those facts and did not do so. And all Judge Mahoney had was the four corners. And, in, you know, to depart from the four corners now on appeal and assert facts that, uh, you know, tend to, you know, attribute error, that's it's not proper. Counsel, let me ask you, uh, do you think that the city's, the alleged violation of the city's policies are relevant at all to the uh, excessive force claim here? Uh, I don't think that they're materially relevant. Uh, as some cases cited, uh, the Ludwig case, um, I don't want to depart from your question. I want to answer your question. The Ludwig, Ludwig case was brought up on one of those 28J letters that uh, Judge Loken was talking about earlier today. If you didn't read it, you know, that, that's fine and everything. But, you know, this late in the game, you know, being a, either a 2020 case or a 1995 case, I know there were two of them, but, uh, you know, this late in the game, those were available to counsel prior and shouldn't, shouldn't really be considered. But in Ludwig, the, uh, um, apparently the uh, department's policy was considered uh, as a factor. Um, okay, you may consider it as a factor, but in the constitutional analysis, what's before this court is to decide whether there was a constitutional violation. It has just been said in, in uh, cases in this circuit and other circuits, you know, police departments can make policies that are more restrictive. Um, was, that, that was, the, was the issue in Ludwig, was it, was it past the balance, the Scott balance and into the merits of reasonableness? I mean, here, here the, the, the Scott says it's the, it's the risk to public safety that's balanced against the risk the maneuver creates to hurting the suspect. The yes, sir. Suspect. And, and, um, I, it's. I don't. Does it? Did you? Did you? Do you know of a case that talks about inherent risk? Yes, sir. The uh, Scott case does. Also, the um, yeah, the Moore Jones case. You were on the Moore Jones case, Judge Loken. Um, you talked about that it was an inherent risk. It cited Scott, uh, Moore Jones. Um, uh, talked about that if you have a, a motorist fleeing police, yes, that it creates an inherent risk to the public. It's the police's job to stop fleeing motorists. It's their job because their job is to protect the public. And it is a highly dynamic, fluid, and ever-developing situation. You don't know the outcome. You can't know what's down the road ahead. What lay down the road in this case is not known. The risk in the future is implicit in this kind of case. I'm sorry? A basic risk of developing in the future is implicit in this kind of case, isn't it? Exactly, Judge Arnold. And what lay, a, lay down the road ahead yeah. had this maneuver not been executed? We don't know. Christensen doesn't know. Christensen couldn't know. Nobody can know. At this point, we will never know what we saved by executing this maneuver. Okay. Um, we also don't know exactly what the uh, pursuing automobile knew about the future risk either. Well, it's exactly that. It's exactly it's why it's the police's so, job to stop fleeing motorists. Because they don't know what, lie, what, yeah. what lay ahead in the road either. Um, I wanted to 
basically just sort of bring in um, the, the case law that has been most prevalently briefed um, by the city here. I don't want to rehash the brief. That's not why we're here. I just want to hit the highlights, though. Um, a lot of the jurisprudence in this uh, circuit all uh, is progeny of Scott, uh, the Supreme Court case that uh, basically um, that the use of force is justified with a fleeing motorist. Um, now, the Scott case didn't involve a pit maneuver, but it it, that officer did consider a pit maneuver. But I believe it was 85 miles per hour that the, that, that suspect in that case was, was traveling. And so the officer then uh, rammed the rear end of that vehicle, which caused a collision and, and you know, terrible consequences. Um, and, and that's... that's um, Actually, we, we had a lot of high-speed... court cases predating Scott, which were validated in Scott, including, oh, in, including an in-bank case. Indeed, a sort, of, a sort of indication for the Eighth Circuit, you know, being, being basically affirmed by uh, the, the Scott case. Well, I, I think Ter Terrell and Slusharchik and the others that occupied a lot of our time for two or, two or more years. I will confess that I... Were validated by... Uh, Validated by Scott. I, I will confess I, I didn't read those cases, sir. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not up to speed on those. But but I think I take your point. Well, they, they were they were tort cases against counties for for high-speed chases that hurt the, the fleeing suspect. Right. It hurt the fleeing suspect. And, and the Scott case, of course, he was horribly injured. I believe he ended up a quadriplegic, which is very tragic. Nobody wants that. Um, the Eighth Circuit case is sort of kind of on the on the other end of uh, I guess the harm spectrum. I want to visualize a spectrum here. So where where uh, you have a fleeing motorist, motorist fleeing police. Okay, um, you have Scott, which had very high speeds, very excessive behavior by the suspect, and a really bad outcome. Um, now Moore Jones is kind of sort of kind of on the other side of this, where you had a vehicle. A suspect was fleeing at about, I believe it says 35 to 38 miles per hour. So a lot less, less excessive behavior by the by the suspect, but still fleeing police, not not pulling over and stopping for the um, reduced, I guess, um, techniques used by police to try to effectuate the seizure. I think, I think the technique is relevant. I mean, the the, uh, the the surest way to stop a fleeing fleeing vehicle is to put an empty Put an empty vehicle in the middle of the road. But and perhaps stop check, stop sticks, and pit maneuvers are all less less likely to to injure the fleeing suspect than just put an empty car in the middle of the road and he either stops or he. One could do that, and I think you're alluding to sort of Lank Lankford, which this court decided last month. Well, except Lankford was just, as I read it, that the you don't know why the the new the, the the police officer that was joining the chase didn't know pulled, why pulled his his vehicle in partly into the road, probably expecting to join the chase when the the uh, intoxicated suspect drove by. Instead, he drove into the 
the right into the path. Wasn't really blocking the road, but yeah. right, right, and drove into the path as as alleged anyway. By um, well, it's like the passenger vehicles that get sideswiped in some of these flight cases. Okay. Um, well, in any event, I think this case it falls between Moore Jones and Scott. If you're looking at a spectrum of the suspect's behavior and, and the outcome and the force used by police in those cases. So Moore Jones was, you know, obviously, and, and speaking of, that case involved a pit maneuver, like I said, at 35 to 38 miles per hour, and that vehicle went into a ditch and struck a culvert. Um, you know, and, and uh, Christensen sort of argued in, in reply brief that the officers arguably didn't know that that culvert was there. But then um, Christensen tries to distinguish this case from Moore Jones by saying that, that Officer Eral knew about the pole at 2 a.m., you know, in the dark, that it was, you know, clearly obvious. I think that might be a stretch. And, oh, by the way, that's not in the petition either. So, again, an attribution of facts to try to assert error against Judge Mahoney. Um, that's not alleged that Officer Eral knew about the pole. But, again, it's an obstacle in the ditch. It's regrettable. Uh, you know, you know after, after the pit, the vehicle hits the pole. That's regrettable. Um, but not, it shouldn't be a, a fact considered, uh, shouldn't consider that as to whether or not Judge Mahoney um, committed reversible error for making that judgment. Um, but this case is, is between Scott and Moore Jones, but it's more of a Scott because you have, you know, high speeds, again, as alleged by, by Christensen. It's going, you know, between 80 and 90 miles per hour, and, and you know, if there's a pit maneuver, I, you know, who, who knows really if it was really that fast at the moment the pit was executed, but, you know, we have to, we have to um, take a look at Judge Mahoney's order and marry it up with the petition. Complaint. I'm going to do that all day. You know, complaint, petition, so... Um, it's more of a, this is more of a scat, though, because of the high speeds and the outcome. Um, based on based on that sort of spectrum, this is kind of falls squarely within it. Um, so I I don't see um, you know the facts alleged in the complaint don't show a constitutional violation. Judge Mahoney said, and and I think that that um, the The, the facts asserted to show that there was no threat, that, that I have already said this a couple times now, and I'm sorry, but the, the, those factual assertions shouldn't be considered. Um, I want to back up something that Judge Kobe said uh, before about the threat, that, that there was no, no assertion by, in, in the complaint that there was no threat at all, and that, that's correct. There was a threat, and that's, you know, in all the cases, Moore, Jones, Scott, and all the progeny, um, it talks about the threat to the police officers too. Uh, that that they're not you know they're not innocent bystanders that are you know standing there and it's just happening to them. But because their job is to protect the public, I mean they're putting themselves at risk too. And there is a risk to them when um, when they they have to try to stop a, a fleeing motorist that is uh, would otherwise present. A danger to the public, it, you know. If the, if it were proven that there was absolutely a clear road ahead, but there would still be a danger to the police officer too. So I think that the argument that there was no threat at all, um, you know, if, aside from the fact that that wasn't really 
um, alleged or, or really properly briefed, this, the threat was still there. So th that argument kind of lacks merit and fails. Um, counsel, before you sit down, and, and do you know where this occurred? And, and I assure counsel it won't affect. I know it's not in the record, but I've spent a lot of time in Sioux City. Do you know where this occurred? Just, just as a general question. Do you know where Briar? Affect my Do you know where Briar Cliff is? Yeah. Um, it's on Talbot Road, where it's a gravel okay. gravel road, at yeah, North End and, there. And again, it's that's not relevant to deciding the case, but um, I'm sure you are understandably curious. It um, strikes me that if there had been a a lot of pedestrians around. The plaintiff's claim would have been that that's even more reason to let the uh, car go because there's a likelihood in that case the car will slow down and reduce the uh, threat to pedestrians. Um, yeah, I agree. You know, and I don't know. It seems to me this threat business works both ways. You mean the police officer could have slowed down? It, 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 yes. And let him go? Well, I mean, the argument would be that in that case... The car that was being pursued would have slowed down, and uh, there would have been a less threat. Uh, Christensen always had that choice, and you know we could have. Could, I'm just saying it couldn't work both ways, and that's why this kind of case is so difficult to assess. Well, I, I hope that it, you don't find this one difficult to assess. I believe that this one is between Moore, Jones, and Scott. You know, if you, if you think of them as a spectrum, this is right in the middle. And, and well, I said this kind of case. I see. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I didn't quite take your meaning. I see that my time is up, but I wanted to more, uh, I guess, I, I don't did, did I answer your question? Yeah, sorry. Okay. I wanted to get into a substantive due process, but I see my time is up. Do you have any questions? Thank you, Your Honors. There's not a heightened pleading standard for constitutional violations under the federal rules of civil procedure. This is not a fraud case. Our only obligation is to plead sufficient facts to state a plausible claim. At that point, uh, as this is a case involving qualified immunity, it then becomes the affirmative obligation of the, def of the defendants to state what facts, as alleged in the complaint, uh, would, just would provide justification uh, uh, for an action that would otherwise be a constitutional violation. At the and that is uh, part and parcel as to why uh, the uh, difference between a summary judgment and a motion to dismiss is not a distinct is not a distinction without difference. Uh, in Scott v. Harris, uh, that case was decided was decided almost solely on video, which recorded. Uh, the driver weaving in and out of traffic, passing dozens of vehicles, putting do forcing dozens of more, dozens more to go onto the shoulder of the road. Uh, at which point, the off with I believe at the time the stop was used, uh, uh, car headlights on the horizon. Excuse me. Do you, following up on that, do you disagree with the district court's observation that the chase was? A minimum of 2.6 miles here. No, I, I, I do not disagree with that. And I do believe that 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 is a fact. That is something that the court could uh, properly judicially notice. Uh, 
I believe that that is something that the district court could uh, judicially notice that the, the 2.6 uh, mile minimum. Uh, I don't have I don't take, uh, take any issue with that. Um, the last thing I would say is that uh, if we look at uh, the use of force as utilized here as justified by uh, an inherent by an inherent threat uh, of all high, of uh, all high speed vehicle chases, then we are completely disregarding the fact bound the fact bound morass that uh, the Scott Court recognized we must trod through in order to decide these cases and determine whether force was excessive or not. And with that, Your Honor, I would just ask that uh, the case, uh, that the district court be reversed, uh, in this case be remanded. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. case has been uh, thoroughly briefed and well argued, and we will take it under advisement.